0: This is Bad Boys at the Eye, with your hosts, Mike Pate and Keith Black Trudeau. That's it, baby, and a foul! Hey, y'all put it in the front
1: page, back page, middle page, wherever headliners, call on us, so and we will win game two.
0: Good pick, you We will win game two. The game's over, and the Pistons have won the world championship! Welcome back to Bad Boys and Beyond. We are your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. We got a special, special show today. We're trying something new, something we've never done before, uh, and we're doing a mailbag episode. We we asked everybody for their questions, and and I think we got back a, a pretty decent amount of questions. Keith, are you excited to answer these?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was very interested to see because this is the first time we've ever actually tried to involve our listeners. Uh, in one of our shows. So I was actually excited to see what type of questions we would get. And I, I think we got some very interesting ones.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm definitely looking forward. I know we got one that we're going to save till the end that is going to be like Keith's uh, magnum opus. Uh, so I'm very <laughs> interested in, in hearing about that one. Some, some sort yeah, of trade.
1: Appara- yeah, this one apparently broke Piston's um, Reddit. Uh, they couldn't figure it out. And I honestly can't blame them because to to really uh, unthread the entire thing, it, it it is one trade that is seven other trades in the making. And I, I think it's just uh, an ingenious uh, ploy by Joe Dumars. Uh, but we will get to that. That's just a teaser.
0: All right. Well, before we before we get to any questions, uh, we have something to talk about and probably, you know, hopefully not for the last time, but probably the last time. Winning time got canceled this week, and uh, I mean, God, it just sucks so much. And I just can't watch the last episode. I can't do it. I I can't. I just can't do it. I haven't seen it. I I I. How do you end this thing with the Celtics winning the championship? I mean, how do you do that? Like, so I haven't seen the last episode, but I have just I've look i've i've been around for a long time i'm 37 years old a lot of shows that i've liked in the past have gotten canceled and i've been okay with it you know you get a little upset you go "Oh, you know that sucks um whatever i'll rewatch it when it comes to netflix or something but this one i'm like genuine gen genuinely uh like downtrodden and upset about this like i, I really really like this show yeah there is some hope that
1: uh a company like Netflix or maybe Apple picks it up but that, that this isn't a show that I think Amazon Prime would be able to fund uh not that this was a huge budget but there are a lot of very good um very prominent actors in this show and that probably took up a big chunk of the budget uh between uh, John C Riley and um, Adrian Brody and uh, I watched the finale. And they didn't really release, or they didn't really let it slip that the uh, show was canceled until after uh, the finale had been released. So I was actually, I didn't know the show had been officially canceled until there was about 10 minutes left in the finale. So I'm like, ah, screw it, let's go ahead and watch this. Um, I absolutely loved that episode. If that was the final episode, look, I can... I can treat it. I'm a big Firefly fan. If anyone is familiar with that early 2000s uh, short-lived sci-fi series, uh, has a massive cult following, despite being canceled after I don't know 14 or 15 episodes. It is a magnificent series that clearly ends before they could conclude anything. Uh, they they did release a, a movie called Serenity to to try to rush you know the the rest of the storylines and try to complete it. Uh, But the bottom line is the show, even without the movie, uh, is a very, very fine show, uh, even though it is incomplete because it is so well written and so well acted. And I I kind of see Winning Time the same way. I I think these two seasons are very, very good by themselves. And yes, uh, the show is obviously incomplete. (laughs) The series ends with uh, Jerry Buss's lawsuit from his uh, not really ex-wife hanging over his head. She's trying to take everything he owns. Uh, his daughter is is you know getting uh, one of the uh, LA Kings hockey players paid because she's dating him, which is kind of a conflict of interest. Uh, yeah. The uh and, and like you said, the the series ends uh, with the Celtics winning the championship. And I think the most insulting thing is, and I said this on Twitter, th- this was basically the Empire Strikes Back of the series uh the, the, this was the the celtics uh taking the crown back from the la lakers like they had done so many times before and this would be like if star wars ended after two episodes after just that an empire strikes back and you see a little crawl uh caption at the end with some music playing saying yeah years later luke skywalker would rescue han solo from jabba the hutt and uh Anakin. Skywalker would redeem himself and the emperor was defeated and everyone lived happily ever. Like it's so they do the exact same thing with winning time. And I think it's so ridiculous. That little scene that they rushed at the end, clearly after the show was canceled, they added something at the end to try to put a cap on it. And it's just so rushed and so ridiculous uh, to say, Oh yeah. um, After losing to the Celtics, uh, the Lakers won the next two matchups. We don't know why Uh, we don't know how magic recovered from this. (laughs) uh we just they just tell us that it happened and we're supposed to be happy about it but look all that aside if you just don't watch that horrible uh rushed montage ending uh that they just tacked on to the end of it i think that is it is an amazing uh season finale episode i really do uh, and the scenes that that the big scenes so like um kevin McHale clotheslining kurt rambis or larry bird uh provoking uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They recreated those scenes almost perfectly. I was blown away because I could tell each and every scene that they showed what was going to happen because I'd already seen it uh, on film. The attention to detail that was paid uh, to reenacting those those scenes during the finals, I thought was was remarkable. And I I thought that was a great tribute uh, to the care that they paid Uh, to this rivalry and I I thought the actor that played Larry Larry Bird I forgot his name I thought he was fantastic as well
0: I just can't do it man I just can't watch it Uh, I just knowing that it's going to end it just sucks I just
1: um, yeah but think about it as you're just watching a a reenactment of the 1984 finals just just look at it in that in that respect you get a complete uh, recap of the 1984 finals and a very faithful one I might add uh, I understand your heart's broken by this. Uh, mine is too, but look, six months from now, even a year from now, you're going to want to go back and see it because it is really, really good.
0: Okay. All right. I'll 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 give it a shot at some point. Um, my hope is that, and uh, I've been bugging Jeff Perlman about this to no avail. Uh, just like, is there anyone, is there any way we could get this on any other streaming service, Apple, Netflix, I'll watch it on Tubi or YouTube. I don't care where it goes. Like, I, I just I need more. I I, I need more. And uh, I think this
1: show would thrive on Netflix. I honestly do. Uh, Apple, yeah, that might be a different crowd, uh, but Netflix is seems to be this the spot that this would really work in.
0: Well, I don't know if you saw that uh, uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr., who is uh, Ice Cube's son. Uh, and is an actor, but he he was he was asking on Twitter if anyone knew how much the rights to the show cost. So I don't know. I maybe I I I I'm not I a, you
1: fifty bucks.
0: I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I I think I think Ice Cube has some sort of production company. Uh, so you know, don't hold your breath or anything, but you you never know. And he's a huge Lakers fan too. Obviously, Ice Cube is. He narrated the whole thirty for thirty. Him and Donnie Wahlberg narrated the thirty for thirty Lakers Celtics rivalry, uh, which is a fantastic. uh, I think it's a four part series that you should definitely watch if you haven't already. But uh, my
1: my worry is having my 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 main concern is having a Lakers fan have creative control over this because this is I think what part really what makes. Uh, winning time great that it was a i don't want to say it was an authentic look but it was a non-biased uh look at the laker dynasty uh it, it gave you everything that was great about kareem and magic and norm nixon and pat riley but it also showed you that they were very flawed human beings and i would really hate to have someone Oversee the show and try to turn it into a, a Laker love fest, like every other documentary we've ever seen in our lives. This show was okay with being different. It was okay with, uh, pissing off the actual uh players that it was portraying. And I, I think it did so fairly and honestly, uh, throughout both seasons. So that, that does kind of worry me a little bit, but look, I would rather continue than not continue at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess we'll we'll just wait and see. We'll we'll cross our fingers and we'll see where things go. But anyhow, uh, let's get into some of these questions. We got some great questions. Let's uh, let's start with uh, Ben Chulik sent this to us. Uh, sent this one actually directly to you, and I think it's a good question. I, I, I I'm interested to hear hear your answer. Uh, how much of a difference would it have made if the Pistons didn't trade Michael Williams? I I think he could have been uh, played a big role with Isaiah injured and turned into a big trade ship.
1: So, yeah, Michael Williams, for those of you that don't know, he was the rookie that was essentially the last guy on the bench. Well, maybe Fennis Demba was. He was the second-to-last guy on the bench uh, for the original Bad Boys uh, team in 1989. Uh, he didn't really play a whole lot, obviously. He was a third-string point guard, really fourth-string, if you include Vinny Johnson <laughs> uh, being the – you know, Vinny, Isaiah, and all essentially being point guards. So – Michael Williams rarely got playing time. And at the end of the season, uh, he was dumped to Phoenix for in, in part for Anthony cook, who himself was dumped, uh, for a draft pick, conditional draft pick that the Pistons never actually received. So the, the Pistons essentially were just done with Michael Williams. They didn't really want to give him a chance long-term. And that by all accounts was a mistake because Michael Williams went on to have a, a very productive career. Uh, not so much in Phoenix but he went on to be a starting point guard in Indiana and then in, on Minnesota uh, averaged double digit points averaged uh, over 8 assists a game a couple of seasons put up pretty darn good numbers uh, he also holds the NBA record for most consecutive free throws uh, without a miss which nobody remembers uh, but but here is the here here is the overall issue uh with with Michael Williams is that Look, he was a productive player. The Pistons definitely didn't need to give him away for nothing, but what really could he have done for that team that was had such downward momentum uh, from 91 through 94, where the team was just crumbling, they were getting older? Uh, it, it just wasn't a good uh, situation, and I, I don't think Michael Williams uh, would have turned that. Could they have gotten a little bit for, more for him and trade if they had showcased him later on? Maybe. But if you look at Michael Williams, even at his most productive, uh, I think the best player that he got traded for was Pooh Richardson, uh, who himself very similar player to Michael Williams, a, a, a reliable point guard, really best suited for a backup role, that never really affected winning and losing. He was just a, a reliable guy that could be a cog in a bigger machine. I, I don't know that Michael Williams, I don't know that letting him go really affected the frame franchise, uh, adversely at all. Uh, I'm pleased that he had a, a, a very good career for himself. I just don't see any path forward, uh, for him with the Pistons that he could have really impacted them at, at best. They, they could have swapped him for another young player or a, a late first rounder down the road, but that would require him to play a lot of minutes, which would mean that Isaiah and Vinny <laughs> would have to be gone. And then you wonder if they have Michael Williams uh, do they draft Lindsay Hunter in, in 1994.
0: Yeah, that's actually what I was going to say. That was, that was my, my big takeaway from that. If Michael Williams is still here, they probably don't draft Lindsay Hunter. And, uh, and then you got, you know, Michael Williams and, uh, Alan Houston and Grant Hill. I mean, it's an interesting team, but Michael, uh, I mean, he really, like you, I think you kind of mentioned, it, he was really only good for like four years uh, with Indiana and Minnesota. I mean, like he he was he was good. He was 15 points a game. But like, you know, by the time he was 28, he was already, you know, dealing with injuries and he was out of the league by 32. So I, I just don't I'm with you. I don't think it would have made that big of a difference. I don't think that he would have been a better player had he stayed in Detroit. I think he would have probably been about the same. All right. So we have some more questions here. These are all from Rob Fritz. He uh, sent us four questions and uh, let's, uh, I I think we'll, you know, you answer, I'll answer and, and, uh, and and let's see what we get. So let's start off with this one. Who are your favorite players that were never all-stars? I don't know if that's just Pistons or if that's the NBA completely.
1: All right. Well, First one is easy for me. That's Drowson Petrovic. Uh, uh, ironically, an all NBA performer that never made the all star team because uh, I want to say it was a little bit of anti European bias still in the mid 90s. Uh, some of it was because he he closed the season a lot stronger than he began it. And they kind of gave him a reason to leave him off the all star team. Uh, but unfortunately, that was his finest season. In 1993, he passed away uh, tragically in a car accident. Never got, never really got the chance to get the recognition that he deserved. But man, uh, those two seasons with the Nets, uh, ninety-two and ninety-three, uh, he he was an absolute uh, joy to watch, he, even on those mediocre Nets teams. Uh, fantastic shooter, uh, could play make. Uh, he was like Ray uh, Ray Allen uh, with really good play, like with Jason Kidd's playmaking skills. Uh, he didn't have the the raw athleticism. Uh, of Jason Gidd, but he, he had the ability to find people uh, in addition to creating shots for himself. And he had damn near unlimited range. Uh, Reggie Miller wrote in his book that he was jealous of Drozdan Petrovic's Petrovich's uh, form. Uh, that's how good it was. It was the quickest uh, release that he had ever seen to that point. Um, th- so if I had to get, uh, give you my favorite, uh, uh, not all-star of all time, it would be Drozdan Petrovich.
0: All right, for me, I'm I'm torn between two guys. Uh, Screw it, I'm going to do this one. I'm going to go with uh, Jason Williams. Not the Nets' Jason Williams, but, uh, you know, Kings, Grizzlies, Jason Williams. Uh, I mean, the guy was just so unbelievably exciting to watch. And I know that he wasn't, you know, the, the greatest player in the world or anything like that. He wasn't Drazen Petrovic, you know, but he was a guy that, like, you knew you were in for a highlight. And when I moved to uh, when, when we moved to Memphis as a family, you know, um, yeah, I was bummed out about having to move there. But the thing that made me more excited was the fact that uh, we were moving to a place where that just got a brand new NBA team. And this player, Jason Williams, who's super exciting to watch, is going to be the point guard of that team. Um, obviously, it didn't really work out all that well in Memphis. Uh, but, you know, he was unbelievably good in sacramento and i loved how when he came back and helped the heat win a championship like he really changed this game during that time and just and, and kind of fell more into that role player uh mode i thought he i thought he handled it really well
1: all right for my next pick uh this is another easy one for me it's gonna be
0: rod strickland i are you kidding me keith are you serious yeah that's my other guy I knew it would be. That's why I, I... You know I bring him up on here all the time.
1: <laughs> well, look, he was on my list, too, so I had to take... Look, if you, do you want to take Rod Strickland? I mean,
0: look, I, I just think he was the most underrated point guard of the entire we, we, look. We can both
1: take Rod Strickland. I agree. Um,
0: Incredibly underrated.
1: Yeah. His ability for a guy that couldn't shoot a lick... <laughs> He had the most unreliable, like shot putt style jumper. But the fact that everyone on the floor knew he didn't want to shoot the ball, that they knew everybody knew that he wanted to get into the lane and either finish or draw the defense in and, and dish the ball off to the open man. Everyone knew that's what he wanted to do on every play. And yet he was still able to do it because his handle was so damn good. Uh, one of the most fun point guards, not, maybe not one of the best point guards of the 90s. I don't know that he ever truly deserved to make an all-star game despite, at one point, leading the league in assists. But he was definitely a very fun player and certainly a player you could win with. Uh, he played for some bad teams, but he played for a lot of very good ones, too. Uh, for for okay, so but we'll say you, you took Rod Strickland, so I'm going yeah. to come up with Uh, this is also one of Isaiah's favorites. Uh, a guy by the name of uh, Purvis Short, and yeah, no one really knows who this guy is. Uh, small forward, played in the 1980s for the Golden State Warriors when they weren't very good. Uh, but one of the best mid range jumpers of all time. Uh, At his peak, he was a guy averaging 28 points a game. my favorite thing about Purvis Short is just his his jumper. The, the form was so good, and it was like from anywhere from 12 feet to 18 feet out. Uh, very rarely attempted a three-pointer. Uh, he was just so comfortable in that mid-range area, and he was just deadly from there. And he kind of toiled away in obscurity. He was kind of like Alex English, except Alex English played on much better teams. Uh he, he's the guy that everybody knows is the guy that scored more points than anyone else in the 80s, but uh Pervis Short wasn't far behind him, uh, and he was very much the same archetype.
0: All right, I've got one more, and then we'll we'll go to the next question. I got one more guy. Uh, and it's Tony Massenberg. <laughs> now, look, Tony had no chance of being an all-star at all. Like he was he was not a very good player. The only reason I uh bring him up is because on NBA Live back in the 90s, I would always take Tony and I would turn all his ratings up. I don't know why I did it, I just chose a random player. It was Tony Massenberg, and I I kept that streak going until he was just not in the league anymore. But for some reason, I always turned his ratings like all the way up and I made Tony Massenberg one of the best players in the league. I don't know why I did it. Uh, I, I still do that today when I get on NBA 2K, I'll I'll pick a random player. And it's usually like Dante Exum or something. And I'll make I like just I like the idea of creating a world where I can uh create a redemption story. It's uh it's weird, but but there you go, Tony Massenberg. one of Grant Hill's uh, best
1: dunks of all time, I remember it was on Tony Massenberg. Uh it, it was Isaiah Thomas's uh Jersey retirement night. Uh it was very early in the game. Uh the Pistons were, weren't coming out of the gate very slowly and they just didn't have much energy. And I, Grant Hill got the ball in transition. Uh, I think it was a two on one break and poor Tony massenberg is (laughs) just standing under the rim and he has no chance. And Grant Hill has a full running start and he just elevates and crams the ball. Uh, right over Massenberg, who is too close to the rim to draw a charging foul. So he gets called for the foul on top of being dunked on. Uh what one, one, one of Grant Hill's uh I think best uh N1 dunks ever.
0: Well, there you go. Um all right. Next question here is what were your favorite non-Pistons teams? Uh I'll just start off right off the bat here. It's Memphis Grizzlies, which I just kind of mentioned because you know, when I was living there, they were they were super cheap and you could go to the game for like 20 bucks because they were a brand new team and nobody really knew about them. They played in the pyramid, which is the weirdest arena in the world uh, is actually now a bass uh, pro shop. Believe it or not, <laughs> a ba- it, it, believe it or not, it is a bass pro shop resort. They, they turn. Wow. They, yeah. There's hotel rooms and you can stay there and there's like uh, games and stuff you could play. There's a bar and restaurant in there. I, I don't know how Bass Pro got the money for this, but, but yeah, Memphis um, and that grit and grind team. I really loved that that group together. They were so fun to watch with Zach Randolph and Tony Allen and Mike Conley and Marc Gasol and just uh, and even Grievous Vasquez and like just all these guys. They were they were just scrappy. They reminded me a lot of the going to work Pistons, and I, I think that's why I love them so much.
1: All right, so I I have a a short list of teams. Uh, The first one I'm going to start out with, and anyone that's ever followed me on Twitter knows what I'm going to say, including Rob who asked the question, but I think he just enjoys me talking uh, uh, nostalgically about this team. Uh, Mike, can you name me the last NBA team to record 200, or excuse me, 900 block shots and 400 steals in the same season?
0: (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's gotta be the Bulls. I'm thinking, Rod, no, then I don't know.
1: Nope. It is the 1994, not, well, 93-94 Atlanta Hawks. Oh. Uh, okay. One of the great forgotten teams in NBA history. Uh, they had just come off being a, uh, I want to say they were a seven seed in 93 and the Bulls swept them. Uh, they looked like they were old and finished. And Lenny Wilkins comes in as coach, takes over, straightens everything out. And their their lineup of, you uh, know, John Koncak was in the middle. That wasn't great. And it was John Koncak and Andrew Lang at center. But if you put that aside, their next four, uh, you had uh, Kevin Willis, still very good, still all-star type form at the four. You had Dominique Wilkins played his final great season at the three. And you had a backcourt of Mookie Blaylock and Stacey Ogman. Nobody's idea of a sweet shooting backcourt, but they were both top rate defenders. And what the Hawks did, they just suffocated uh, teams defensively uh, with their press, their backcourt. Uh, Stacy Augman at six foot eight was a huge guard. They would post him up at every opportunity. Uh, one of my favorite games, regular season games for the 90s, is uh, the Houston Rockets that season. Uh, the eventual champions they they famously started the season 15 and 0 which was an NBA record and then they went to Atlanta and Atlanta beat them by about 30 some points. Uh it, Atlanta just embarrassed them. Uh Kemba they couldn't get him the ball and when they when they did get him the ball he couldn't find an open man. Uh, it it was just one long uh 48 minute fast break uh with with endless amounts of dunks. And this is one of the tragic teams in NBA history because this is also the only time an NBA team that was leading its conference ever traded its top score. (laughs) Only time this has ever happened that it's traded its top score at the the trade deadline. Uh, This was, we don't have time to go on about this because this will turn into an entire episode in the 94 Hawks. Uh, But the bottom line is the Hawks had the best uh, record in the Eastern conference at the time. And, Lenny Wilkins just didn't decide Lenny Wilkins just decided that Dominique wasn't a great fit for his system. And that was kind of Lenny Wilkins' greatest flaw for all the all the great things that he brought to the table as a coach. He needed players that fitted his system. He didn't ever know how to adjust really. And so they traded Dominique Wilkins. They banished him to the Clippers for Danny Manning. And the rest is history. The the Hawks finished the East that season in first uh, first place. They had the one seed going into the playoffs. But the same thing that always happens to Lenny Wilkins teams in the playoffs happened to the Hawks. They didn't they didn't have their shot creating uh elite score anymore. So their offense got bogged down, uh, too many post-ups. They nearly got upset by the eight seed Miami Heat in the first round. And then in the second round, the the Indiana Pacers just tore them apart and they just became a footnote in history. Uh, which I will defend to my dying day, that would not have happened if had they kept Dominic Wilkins. I think that team could have not only made the finals, I think that team would have won a championship. And that was the first and only time in my life I had ever rooted for the Atlanta Hawks. I will never root for them again. I, I still hold it against them to this day.
0: All right. Well, uh, I, I mean, let me add just one more. This is a super easy one. Right. Uh, The 95 magic, because... I mean they were just so cool you know the coolest jerseys the that the pinstripe black and white jerseys and then that blue alternate that they had and you know Horace Grant and obviously Shaq Penny Dennis Scott and Nick Anderson I mean they're such a fun team and uh I still it's wild to me that that they didn't win that they didn't win at least one championship together like they that team was really good um and they were able to get past Jordan and, and, and uh, and uh yeah, I just, I always thought that team should have won a championship, but
1: all right. All right. Can I add one more real quick?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. So I'm actually going to go to the same year as you, but the other side uh, of the NBA, I'm going to go to the Western conference. I'm going to mention the 1995 Phoenix Suns and okay, yeah. makes them stand out versus every other version of the Suns with Charles Barkley or Kevin Johnson on it. Uh, I just mentioned Danny Manning. I'm going to transition, uh, once again to a Danny Manning episode where, after Manning joins the Hawks uh, midseason, he decides he does not want to be in Atlanta anymore, and he goes to the Phoenix Suns. And Danny Manning's still an All-Star caliber player at this point in his career. For the Suns to get him, uh, at a bargain price, even for that day, it, it turned them into a juggernaut. So, Danny Manning, his his numbers off the bench are they're good. They're not spectacular, but the Phoenix Suns, uh, again with Charles Barkley, Kevin Johnson, Danny Manning, uh, AC Green, Wayman Tisdale, they had a whole bunch of talent. But with Danny Manning off the bench, they were twenty-two and four. With Danny Manning as the sixth man, they were easily the NBA's best team, and Manning is. He had done so many times in his career. He tore his ACL uh, in February. He was lost for the season. Uh, The Suns still finished with 59 wins, and they still very easily could and should have probably beaten uh, the Houston Rockets in the playoffs. They had a 3-1 to series lead, and they blew both games 5 and 7 at home. They just couldn't finish off the fourth quarters. And just the fact that that team was so close to winning a championship without Danny Manning. It, it it's just as tragic for me as the year before. It's just, this wasn't a self, uh, self-inflicted injury. I, I, Manning stayed with the Suns. He stayed loyal to them long-term, but I, I really wish we could replay that season and see what Danny Manning would have done in the playoffs for Phoenix.
0: All right. Uh, the next question here is, at what point in time during the 2004 season did you feel like the championship was realistic for the Pistons? I'll let you go first.
1: Okay, so it's kind of weird because the Detroit Pistons with Rasheed Wallace improved. It, it really took maybe a week, week and a half uh, for them to show what they could be with Rasheed Wallace. And they were just so dominating. They destroyed everybody that they played for the rest of the season. And it was obvious to me that they were the best team in the East uh, with Rasheed Wallace but I had not seen them play an elite Western conference team. Uh, They had one game against the Spurs, which they competed hard, but they lost in San Antonio. And that was really the only true test they had. They had already played the Lakers twice by the time they had traded for Rashid. And they had played the Timberwolves twice. And one of those times, uh, Rashid Wallace had to leave at halftime because the NBA told them that the trade wasn't completed yet. So that wasn't a fair judgment either. And those were the top two teams in the Western Conference that season. So if you ask me when I really believed that the Pistons could actually win the entire thing, it was after game one of the finals. When I saw that that their defense could work against even against Shaq and Kobe. Uh, and, And there was no tougher test in the league than those two guys. And if they could shut down the Lakers, I know Shaq and Kobe still scored their points, but they weren't very efficient and everybody else got shut down. When I saw the Pistons embarrass the Lakers on their own floor in game 1 of the finals, that's when it hit me that they were truly the best team in the league, that they couldn't just compete, they were actually a better team than the Lakers were.
0: Okay, that's a little late uh but I guess yeah, for... I, I'm surprised my my own answer, I'll be honest <laughs> with you, but I'm going to back ahead. it up. I'm going to back it up a little bit, not too far. I the most people will say, you know, when they traded for Rashid, they knew that was it or like when the Tayshaun block happened like they knew okay this team's destined for something for me it was game five against the nets and Chauncey hits that full court shot even though the the Nets won this game but it, it was like at that moment it was like okay like this team is for real they they're they've got destiny or something is on their side that like there's no way I, I mean I even though the Nets won that game because it's Brian Scalabrini for of all people having like just the best overtime of his entire existence. Uh, like you just knew, I at least I knew there was no way they were going to lose game six or game seven and that they were going to win that series. And they were going to, they were going to head on. I mean, I just felt unbelievable confidence in the team after that one, even though they lost the game.
1: Okay. That's fair.
0: Uh, the last question here from Rob, which Pistons player that never won a ring uh, do you wish had one?
1: Look, we're both going to see Antonio McDice here, right?
0: Exactly, one hundred percent. We, I didn't even have to think about it. I mean, that guy should have won a championship in two thousand five. It's sad that he didn't. He worked his ass off. I mean, that's all I can really yeah,
1: say. Like, well, look, there are other players that I can think of. Uh, Chris Weber, even though he was here for half a season, I thought he really gave a hundred percent of everything he had left in the tank, uh, I mean, with, with his, absolutely shredded. Uh, there's Grant Hill who never got close to a championship, but, uh, he was so great here for so many years. Uh, Adrian Dantley is one that I'd like to special mention, even though he kind of wrote his own exit out of Detroit uh, in 1989, they they the only reason the Pistons became a legit championship contender uh, to start with was because they traded for Adrian Dantley and I I it's hard for me to when when people treat him like he was a cancer here he he wasn't ultimately yeah he was a, a locker room problem that needed to be removed but uh, he he played his absolute butt off in in both eighty seven and eighty eight he gave the Pistons a chance to beat the Celtics which they did not have before and it, it still kind of uh, hurts my heart just a little bit that he a- a- adrian never really got to see the reward that everyone else that played on that 88 team got
0: alan iverson i mean
1: okay maybe let's not go to let's not go too
0: far no i'm alan iverson deserved a ring should have had a ring
1: not, 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 not in not, not detroit
0: no. not in detroit yeah. i'm just saying in general as a player uh You know the the poor guy, like he he busted his ass, man, and he just never had anybody. He just never had anybody with him, and you know, and he had he had a he had DeCambe there at the end, but it was like an older DeCambe. It wasn't the same thing, you know. He had uh, Eric Snow, I guess uh he just never really had like a, a number two they they had a number two for him and then they traded him to the Detroit Pistons in Jerry Stackhouse uh I mean I know that those two probably wouldn't have worked out all that well together but still
1: yeah that 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 relationship had was was long since uh uh run its course by the time they traded Stackhouse to the Pistons I I think somewhat uh some of Allen Iverson's issues is that his style of play just made it hard for anyone else that wanted to handle the ball to play with him because pretty much every play was kind of run for or off of Allen Iverson. And you needed four guys to really play uh, around him as opposed to play with him. Uh, I think you saw a little bit of that. He did play with Carmelo Anthony uh, for, for a quick minute, but those teams were, even though they, both of them scored a lot of points, those teams, despite having a lot of talent, they didn't win a, a whole lot of games. And I think there was a little bit of dysfunction there, but yeah, I, Look, you you can't take anything away from from, from Allen Iverson uh, with the Sixers playing with Larry Brown. Uh, he 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 dragged one of the least talented teams uh, I've ever seen make an NBA final. It's really between he and Moses Malone for the most uh, the most impressive job just taking a team to the finals.
0: All right. Now our next question is from uh dime dropper, a friend of the show and also a former guest. And we'd love to have dime back on whenever, whenever he wants, whenever we can make it work. Uh, love to do another draft with him. Uh, he asks, it's kind of a two, two, he has two questions here. So let's go with the first one. Worst trade in Pistons history. Now, before we get into that, Keith, I'm going to qualify this one and I'm going to say, you can't mention the Allen Iverson trade. So you got to come up with something different. I'm sure you will, but you got to come up with something.
1: Different. Well, I, I had some honorable mentions, and that was one of my honorable mentions. Um, so you already know what I'm going to say, right?
0: I, I would imagine it's uh, I don't know, the Kevin Porter trade or something no, it, like that.
1: <laughs> no, no. Well, Kevin Porter, they got him uh, uh, for Dave Bing. And Dave Bing was kind of that was the end of his career. So that, I think that even that even though they had to give up a first round pick with Dave Bing to get Kevin Porter, I don't think that's the worst trade in the world because Kevin Porter was a talented guy. Uh he just had some other issues.
0: Oh, uh, is the it the it is it the trade where we built the Celtics dynasty?
1: Oh, absolutely it is. Okay. Uh, All right. there, 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 is, there is no competition <laughs> for this. Uh even if you include the Iris and Deal, no competition whatsoever. Uh, the the official trade was uh, ML Carr left the Pistons to sign with the Boston Celtics. And back then, if you signed another team's free agent, you had to work out essentially a sign-in trade. So the deal that Red Auerbach suckered Dick Vitale into was uh, the Celtics get not only ML Carr, uh, but both of the Pistons' uh, first-round picks in 1980, uh, one of them belonging to Detroit, for in exchange for Bob McAdoo. And Dime Driver is not going to want to hear this, but Bob McAdoo sucked uh, after he left <laughs> uh, Buffalo. He was not the MVP uh, caliber player that he had been. But look, he he still made all-star teams after he left and went to New York. Uh, that was kind of on reputation, even though he scored a lot. He wasn't the same dominant player. Then he went from New York to Boston and started to bottom out. And that should have been Dick Vitale's first clue that maybe we should not get this guy. But no, he got him uh infuriated uh Bob lanier and simultaneously uh toxified the locker room at the same exact time. It essentially it was the move that chased Bob Lanier out of town because they they couldn't get along and McAdoo was there uh under a very highly paid contract and he was clearly unhappy. They couldn't move him. Uh Meanwhile, it got Dick Vitale fired because two weeks into the season, it was already clear to Bill Davidson that the trade was wasn't working, and all of that led to the Pistons having their worst season in in team history, uh, sixteen and sixty six. Uh, after uh, McAdoo was, you know, kind of shut down due to injury, and I say this in quote unquote because he simply wasn't happy with his contract, according to Tom Wilson, and then uh, Trader Jack McCloskey taking over and essentially moving Bob Lanier for whatever he could get just to put him in a better situation and let the, let the team bottom out so he can build them back up. But that's only the Piston side of it. Uh, I, I mentioned the two first round picks uh, that the Pistons gave up to Boston uh, 1980, which is the season after they traded for McAdoo. So after the Pistons bottomed out in, in uh, 1980 uh, with 66 losses, league's worst record, they didn't even own their own draft pick, Boston did. So Boston took that first round draft, that number one overall pick in 1980, flipped it to the Golden State Warriors uh, for the number, I want to say it was three pick, which they selected Kevin McHale, and also Golden State's uh, center by the name of Robert Parrish. So not only did the Pistons screw themselves, uh, make their team worse with this deal, uh, but they also built a dynasty around Larry Bird, who the Celtics already had. Th- this was just a historically awful, awful, awful deal. Now, what happens if this deal never happens? I'm I, the book. The Pistons were probably going to bottom out anyway, but there's a good chance that they would have draft. They would have been the team drafting Kevin McHale, and then maybe a year or two later, they're still very bad. They would have. They maybe they would have drafted Isaiah Thomas. We don't know at this point. Uh, but. I, I don't see any other deal in Pistons history that's even close to being as bad. Uh, we, I I have three honorable mentions. I got, one, I got one. I got one. Go ahead.
0: I just want to make sure that you, I, you don't take one of mine. Uh, so I, for me, it's the Dennis Robin to the Spurs trade uh, because you get Sean Elliott, you get David Wood, you get a 1996 first round pick, you wind up moving Sean Elliott right back to San Antonio. So that, and what did they get for that when they moved him back? Bill Curley. Bill Curley. And so you got Bill Curley, David Wood, and then that 1996 first round pick winds up becoming Jerome Junkyard Dog Williams, which is fine, I guess, but he he didn't last very long and he wasn't really that good of a player. I, I mean, the Spurs absolutely fleeced the Pistons to get one of the best defensive player, screw it, the best defensive player of all time, I'm just going to say it, the best defensive player of all time, got traded for what would become David Wood, Bill Curley, and Jerome Williams. I don't know how it gets any worse than that, I really don't.
1: It's kind of weird because Dennis Rodman, look, you you can look at his current totality and say, yeah, the Pistons gave up Rodman for Sean Elliott, and Rodman's obviously a better player than Sean Elliott, but Rodman was also seven years older than Sean Elliott. Rodman was 32 <laughs> when when the Pistons dealt him, and he also had very public uh, uh, issues, yeah. shall we say? Uh, if you remember the the story with the shotgun in the in the palace parking lot, oh, I do. So there there were a great deal of concerns on is is Dennis Rodman uh, mentally fit to continue playing in the NBA? So it's not like it was a zero risk thing from the Spurs. And look, a, a lot of his Uh, on-court issues, followed him to San Antonio. Uh, He imploded in both of their playoff runs in 1994 and (laughs) 1995. They they, they couldn't control him either. And there was a thought that he might be out of the NBA after San Antonio before the Bulls kind of rescued him. Uh, But look, on its face, yeah. Obviously, the Spurs got more in return from the Pistons than the Pistons got in return from the Spurs. They just didn't realize that uh, in Sean Elliott, they were getting a, a malcontent with a kidney disorder.
0: <laughs> I,
1: I don't know how, yeah. I don't know how uh, more clearly to say it. I, I just want to mention a couple of uh, honorable mentions before we move along. Uh, Ricky Pierce, uh, a guy that we've talked about extensively on this show, who has still scored at this point in his, uh, more points than any ex Piston in NBA history. Uh, the Pistons dealt him after drafting him in the first round, they dealt him a year later. Uh, to the clippers for a 1986 second round pick which wound up being jeff hornacek it would have paid off handsomely if they hadn't dealt that pick <laughs> for a guy that never played in the nba uh, also the dave debusher trade uh, mr detroit uh one of the two or three best players uh, to ever come out of the city of detroit to this day uh traded him to new york for walt bellamy and howard comives uh, neither of them would amount to much of anything in detroit and you can throw Walt Bellamy's hall of fame selection in my face all you want. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was not a winning basketball player and it was proven time and time again in his career, despite his impressive statistics. Uh, but those are all of my honorable mentions, but none of them come even close to being as bad as Dick Vitale, uh, trading eventually the number one pick in the draft for bottom freaking McAdoo.
0: Yep. Uh, all right, then Dime Dropper's other question is, who is the most underrated piston ever? And I am going to go ahead and take the lead on this one. And when I say Mr. Terry Mills is the most underrated piston of all time, I mean, this guy was incredible. And, I, I mean, just you would look at him and you'd, and you'd say, there's no way that that guy could – I mean, he's, he's a big dude. Like, he looks like he's out of shape, but he wasn't out of shape. You know, he could run – and he could hit three and, and I mean, like he, he could do a lot of things. I loved that guy, uh, especially on the video games. Believe me, he, he hit a lot of three. He broke Reggie Miller's Miller's record, but uh, uh, you know, he broke all the records. So he, he was the greatest three-point shooter in video game history, in my opinion.
1: I like that answer. Um, we're, we're looking at this two different ways, I suppose. Uh, my answer would be Bob Lanier. And I, I don't. In my mind, it's not even close. Yes,
0: totally un, un underrated NBA Hall of Famer.
1: Yeah, that's like I said. We're looking at this uh, from two very different angles. <laughs> uh, Bob Lanier, to me, is still the third, uh, third best Piston of all time. Uh, I I still rate him as the highest, as the best center of the Pistons I've ever had. Period. Uh, ahead of uh, Ben Wallace. Ahead of <laughs> Bill Ambeer, and I don't think anyone else really sees it that way. And look, the guy never made uh, All-NBA uh, first team. It just never happened. And the reason for that is if you look at back at his career, every single center that made All-NBA instead of him uh, won an MVP at some point. In there. They were all MVPs. It was the greatest era for centers in NBA history. And there were a lot of seasons where – Bob Lanier probably should have made All-NBA, uh, but he didn't because the Pistons. He was just stuck in a dumpster fire uh, in Detroit, for lack of uh, better terminology. The Pistons during the 70s were a horribly run organization. And Bob Lanier was so damn good. It, it, just the limited film I've seen of him, uh, he was decades ahead of his time. His, it, it wasn't just the fact that he was a huge human being that could score in the post, had a great left-hand hook shot, a uh, score could score mid-range. A lot of centers could do that. He he could step out to NBA three-point range, even though there was no three-point line back then. He had that type of range, uh, 23, 24 feet away from the basket. He didn't do it a whole lot because there was no merit to it. There was no three-point line uh, when he was with the Pistons. But he had those skills. I've seen him hit jumpers comfortably out there. Uh, He, he could face guys up at 7 feet, 280 pounds and take them to the basket off the dribble. Uh, He had just such an amazing array of offensive skills that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar could not handle him defensively. Uh, Of course, Kareem was better than Bob Lanier, but the point is, when they played each other, it was hard to tell who was the better player uh, because Lanier gave him fits. And I I think the ultimate disrespect that he was treated with, especially after he left Detroit, uh, they traded him to Milwaukee uh, in 1980. And the Milwaukee Bucks, it, it took him, I think, what, 13, 14 years to get his number retired by the Pistons. The Milwaukee Bucks retired his jersey before the Pistons did. Uh, the, That was the harsh feelings that Bill Davidson had over Bob Lanier, not wanting to waste the rest of his career on a bad Pistons team. And... It's it's just so easy to forget about him with all the championships and all the playoff success in Pistons history. Uh, Lanier is a guy that never really had that great playoff moment in his life. Uh, he he should have uh, in nineteen seventy four. They probably should have beaten the Bulls and they just didn't do it. But it wasn't. He was the most dominant player in that series by far. Uh, I I am a little bit biased because I did write a uh, memorial piece after shortly after his passing for Detroit Bad Boys. Uh, but it, look, if you want to hear more about Bob Lanier, that kind of summarizes uh, my feelings about him and his career and and his dominance. And I really wish uh, he would be remembered by more Pistons fans because he was a truly unique, one of a kind player.
0: Uh, I've got one more uh, okay. and, then, and then we'll move on to the to the next question here. Uh, Andre Drummond. There, I said it. Andre Drummond. I oh well, I,
1: you, you have now become Ku's favorite host on this show.
0: I I don't understand the, the irrational hate that this guy got the entire time he was here. You're gonna tell me that we're supposed to dislike a guy who leads the league and rebounds four times. Uh I mean, he he's given you two blocks two block shots a game, he scored 17 points a game. I what was the problem with this guy? Why did Pistons fans hate him so much? I'll never understand it. Uh, They, if you want to hate anything, hate that the Pistons couldn't build a team around this guy. I I mean, that's what you can hate. But like, he is just so unbelievably underrated as an NBA center. Not just even with the Pistons. Like, everywhere he has gone, and you know, maybe not so much these days. But well, yeah, I guess maybe even still these days, he's still rebounding like crazy. Like he makes an impact everywhere that he goes. And I just, I just could not believe for so long that Pistons fans just wanted this guy out of here so badly. Like you're, you're just calling for the wrong guy to be traded.
1: I think he got, he gets a bad rap. Uh, I, I was very much a supporter of his, but the, at the same time, he did have a lot of uh, defensive mental lapses. Uh, the free throw shooting, I think put him on everybody's bad side to start out. He, he was just so terrible. Now to his credit, he improved uh greatly to a, a credible level towards the end of his Pistons career but for a while man especially that 2016 playoff series against the Cavs uh, they were just hacking him relentlessly every time the Pistons had any momentum and it it would just take them right out I I think those are kind of the things that fans choose to harp on but uh, look I agree Hall of Fame level rebounder Uh, I very much enjoyed watching Andre play I, I do think to some degree he gets a bad rap for what he accomplished here
0: yeah absolutely um all right now now we got some uh some current questions from lee caver uh his first question is do you think monty is the right coach versus casey is this more of a needing to hear a new voice or about a new system and scheme to be a contender
1: okay so I i think it's a combination Yes, I I think Casey, Dwayne Casey, I thought he did a very good job uh, despite having a terrible record uh, the previous two seasons. Uh, I I thought he did a a great job of shepherding a very young team through a lot of losses. Last year, I think he just packed it in mentally. I think it was too much for him to go through that tanking process of third season. Uh, I think it drained a lot of the enthusiasm out of him. I, I think they very much needed Monty. I think he's going to be a breath of fresh air. I, I don't know if the scheme is going to be a, a huge factor. I know everyone, it makes a big deal over his, um, uh, his instant reaction type of offense, but Dwayne tried to install a similar thing. I look, I, I think given that how, uh, Chris Paul has always succeeded under Monty Williams system. And I think cerebrally Kate Cunningham is a very similar player to Chris Paul. I, I think that is going to be a match made in heaven. Uh, do you want me to answer
0: the second part? Yeah, go ahead. Well, okay. the the Killian part? Yeah or? yeah,
1: or did you want to weigh in on the uh, Monty no. Williams?
0: No, I mean, I just think that, you know, the Pistons, he's the best coach available and the Pistons went out and got him. I, I think he's absolutely the right yeah. guy. I just love what he did with Phoenix. He was able to take that team from, um, you know, from Booker's hitting 76 points in a game because nobody else can shoot to a team that goes to the NBA Finals. So I think... I think he's a good team builder and uh, and I like the scheme and I think everything's going to work out great there. Yeah,
1: I, I think Monty will be more successful than Casey next season, simply because I think the Pistons will be trying to win games as opposed to just rolling the ball out and, and telling the young guys to learn through experience. I think that you're going to see them win games simply because there's going to be actual structure uh, on the court. Whereas last year, I think it was just uh, an undisciplined mess.
0: Right, absolutely. Um, and then the second question that Lee asks is, "Do you think Killian can succeed in a new situation? Team allowing him to continue to develop? What are your expectations for this season?" Oh, well, I think that's a third question. Let's uh, let's do the the Killian thing here first. I'll, I'll go first on this one. Uh, to me, Killian is a lot like Jared Goff. Uh, it, it not not in the sense that. Killian's been to a championship series or anything like that, or he's led a team. But in the sense that I think that Killian's problem is confidence. I I think that this is a kid who has like a a wealth of talent. He can be a great defender. We've seen that. But when it comes to shooting the ball, like he almost strays away from it. Like he's, you know, we mentioned Rod Strickland, earlier who doesn't want to shoot the ball. I think Killian is a lot like that. And, and I, I just, I see him straying away from the opportunity, or straying away from uh, being able to take advantage. I mean, there were plenty of opportunities last year where he would. I think the Pistons like led the league in open three point op- opportunities last year, if I'm not mistaken. That, I, I could be wrong about that, but a lot of the time they would Killian would get the ball in the corner or something, and and he'd be wide open, and he would pass out. And it's like I, I, you know, I, I just think he's scared. I, I think he's has a confidence issue. And I think once that gets solved, I, I think you'll see this kid flourish. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know if that's going to be with Detroit though. I mean, how, how long can you wait on it?
1: Yeah, you, you say when it gets solved? I think I I would qualify it as if. Okay. Um, I, I think there's a good reason why Killian passed up shots last season that he should have taken is because he was biometrics, the worst shooting guard in the league last season. Uh, just by every single metric, he was by far and away just the biggest bricklayer of any volume shooter in the league. And that that's a major problem for him because he doesn't have the athleticism to get to the rim or to draw fouls. He's a big body, a great court vision. But in order to break down the defense, he needs the defense to react to him being wide open. And if he can't hit on a wide open shot, there's no use for him on the floor other than a, a part-time off-ball defender, which he's very good at. But that's not good enough. I, I don't know that Killian's future is in Detroit. I, I think they made that clear, in, uh, very clear in the draft. I don't see a path for him uh, short of there being an injury or another trade. I don't see a path for him even to be in the rotation to start next season. I, I think that's going to be Kate Cunningham. I think that's going to be Jaden Ivy. I think that's going to be Alec Burks. I think, of the, I think that's going to be Monty Morris. I think Marcus Sasser, who's a first round pick is going to have trouble getting minutes to start the season because Their backcourt is, is right now packed with guys that need touches, need minutes and need shots. I'm not rooting for Killian to fail. I very much uh, was interested in him uh, uh, on draft day. And I made that known. Uh, I was not more interested in him than I was in Tyrese Halliburton, but I, I'm not going to lie. I was very happy when the Pistons picked Killian Hayes. Yeah. I think yeah, the last three years he's given us some flashes, but I don't think it's been nearly enough and he's really I don't want to say he has to toughen up because I don't want to tell an NBA player he has to toughen up but uh he needs to play with they he needs to play with the confidence of like you said like a J.R. Smith who can go 0 for ten, but he still thinks he's going to make the next one. And that's the only way that Killian's going to survive in the NBA is if he starts shooting the shots that he needs to shoot, and he also has to start making them.
0: Yeah, our our guy Bill Simmons would call that irrational confidence. Yeah, just going out there and shoot like you know it's going to go in, even if it doesn't half the time. But
1: and, and, and look, if his shooting numbers don't improve, that won't matter. He'll be out of the league in in a year. Uh, but the the only way he's going to succeed is if he at least tries.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess we'll uh we'll we'll see where that goes. And then Lee's Lee's uh final question here is what are your expectations for this season? So I'm I'm going to guess that he's talking about you know uh I don't know if we need to pick an exact record or or what that will be or like but it, it, is this team going to make the the play in or what does this team look like in 2023?
1: Keith. Okay, so I, I've fallen into the into the trap of setting a, a line on wins and losses. I, I don't believe in that anymore. At least not with this team. My expectation is simply this: that they play games that matter in March and early April. I don't even I don't need them to make the playoffs. I don't even need them to make the play in. But I need them to be in position to make the play in, uh, with at least two weeks left in the season. I need them to be. Comp- competitive uh that is the word that i am going to theme around next season competitive i need them to compete in games i need them to walk onto the court and not know that they're already going to lose by 20 points i need them to play with confidence i i need them to surprise some better teams uh than they are which you know all young teams do i need them to have a season like the orlando magic had or the oklahoma city thunder hat last season Uh, That is my bare minimum expectation. Uh, If we're sitting here discussing another top five pick and they didn't uh, beat the lottery odds by some magnificent number, then then this season will be a failure. Uh, I'm sorry. There's nothing wrong with having expectations, even low ones. Uh, We we can't be okay with them losing uh, 55 to 60 games uh, next season. There there has to be an expectation uh, for improvement.
0: Right, yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, for me, it's you know, I, 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 I would love to see at least a play, in. I, I know that's that is maybe some high expectations. I, I get that, but I, I'm tired. I'm tired, Keith. It's it's been a long time, man. It's been a long time, and and even our last playoff run with. With Blake and uh, going up against the Bucs, it's like that. That didn't even feel real. Like you knew as soon as we drew the Bucks, like this is a sweep. I, I didn't even. I don't even think I watched any of those games. That's how. That's how bad I knew it was going to be. So, yeah, I mean, my expectation is playing. I, I'm tired of waiting. Get it done.
1: Yeah, look, all the playing means is that you finished in the top ten in your conference out I'll of fifteen that doesn't sound like it's an insurmountable goal. It just seems that way because the Pistons have been one of the three worst teams in the league uh, since the turn of the decade.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, it's, uh, it's bad. Um, all right. Now we're going to move on to the, to the grand finale here, Keith. We've got one more question. I don't have it in front of me, so you're going to have to to read it. And, uh, and I, I look forward to this one.
1: Okay, so I didn't know I had to re- so
0: I'm going to pull it up real quick. You're just going oh, to have to Okay. It. You know, I would also like to uh I would like to see Cade Cunningham. Not that I don't think that he can do it, but I would like to see him like take the step and, and become an all-star this year. I I I think that I mean, like I, everything I've seen from the kid has been great. Uh I I just would really like for him to shut some people up because uh a lot of people were have given up on k cunningham just because he was out for the year but he is not a joke he is a legitimate player
1: so yeah he he needs to put together a full seat like everybody can see the amount of ability that, that he has and his potential but he's got to start showing it on the court uh his rookie season was uneven i think it was still very good but you Know he had some glaring weaknesses, particularly having his defensive lapses, too many fouls, like lazy fouls, and then uh, his three point shooting was abysmal, and it, that continued on to last season. And which he put up good numbers, very inefficient shooter, and then he got hurt, right? Uh, everybody knows that he can be so so much better than what he's shown so far in the NBA, but he's actually got to step on the court, stay there, uh, and show it. Uh, I'm think people are getting tired of looking forward to next year i think they want this year uh to be the year that things turn around okay so this is a question from i want to say timothy luce loose l-u-c i i apologize if i butchered your name uh, at drunken nihilist And the question is, I've always been curious uh, about the details behind this transaction. I've never been able to find much online. Any thoughts on this weird trade from back in the day? And the the, the trade that he is referring to uh, takes place on June 2nd, 2001. Uh, It involves uh, the Detroit Pistons, the Orlando Magic, and the Houston Rockets. Uh, In the three-team trade, the Orlando Magic trade two first-round picks to the Houston Rockets, And the Detroit Pistons trade Orlando's 2005 first-round pick uh, back to them and get nothing in return. And the Houston Rockets give up nothing in return. This seems like a very odd trade for the Pistons to give up a first-round pick and not be compensated. And there is an actual story behind this, and the story begins – On August 7th,
0: 1997. A cold night on August 7th. Unsewnably cold. It was a
1: cold night for Otis Thorpe. (laughs) All right. All right. So this is a trade that every Pistons fan knows about. Uh, August 7th, 1997, the Detroit Pistons trade Otis Thorpe to the Vancouver Grizzlies uh, for a future first-round pick. Now we all know about that, and we all know the pick turned into Darko Milicic in two thousand three as the number two overall pick. Uh, but we, well, a lot of people don't know where the stipulations behind that pick. Here are the stipulations: uh, the pick must be a pick between number two and number eighteen. Uh, it must be Memphis's own pick if not conveyed after two thousand one. Now what? Now what does that mean? It means from 1998 through 2001, it could be anybody's pick. The Memphis Grizzlies or the Vancouver Grizzlies could have sent the Detroit Pistons any pick between 2 and 18 uh, prior to 2002 and satisfy the terms of the deal. Now, there's a kicker. Uh, Each year, the Grizzlies must notify the Pistons by June 1st that they are going to convey a draft pick. If they do not do so by June 1st, the clock rolls over. So they can't just make a draft day uh, trade and send the Pistons a pick. Uh, they the, the deal has to be consummated by June 1st, or there's no deal, and the protection the pick gets protected for another year. So, are are you with me so far, Mike?
0: Uh, I'm a little bit cross eyed, but yes, I'm with you.
1: All right, but you understand, because everything, all the details I've laid out for you are important uh, to this story.
0: Yes. Okay,
1: so there are six transactions that will take us from A to Z. Uh, The first of which, uh, August 5th, 1999, the Orlando Magic trade Penny Hardaway to Phoenix for two first-round picks of Orlando's choosing. Mm -hmm. Which means that Anywhere between 90, 1999 and, or excuse me, 2000 and 2008, uh, the Orlando Magic can take a first round pick from the Phoenix Suns any year, which is a very, very weird deal. I don't know how the NBA allowed this. But I guess since they weren't stipulated back to back, that it didn't violate the terms of the, of the rule that you can't trade picks in consecutive years, which is eventually what happened. But we'll get to that later uh august 27th of that same year 1999 in an 11 player trade which i'm not going to name any of the players they don't matter uh it involves it, it is the big steve francis trade uh that took him from the grizzlies to the rockets because he refused to play for the grizzlies all right in the deal orlando sends a future sends a future first round pick uh to the houston rockets and the Houston Rockets also send a future first-round pick to the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, can La- the, the Grizzlies' choice anywhere between 2001 and 2003. Okay. Okay. All right, moving on. Uh, August 3rd of 2000, the Orlando Magic uh, sign and trade Tracy McGrady. They send a 2005 first-round pick as compensation to the Raptors. I guess because they wanted that extra year off the max contract. I don't know why else you would send a first round pick to a team for <laughs> a guy that you just signed an unrestricted free agent, but they did it. So Orlando so Toronto now now owns Orlando's uh, 2005 first round pick. February uh, of that following season, February 22nd, 2001, the Raptors in the Corliss Williamson trade send that same Orlando first round pick uh, to the Detroit Pistons. So, so we, 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 we have set the board here. Uh, Let me, let me summarize everything for you. Going into the 2001 season, the phoenix suns owe, or the orlando magic a draft pick the orlando magic owe the houston rockets a draft pick and the houston rockets owe the vancouver grizzlies a draft pick you can see where this is going
0: yes i can
1: okay 2001 standings uh the phoenix suns who their draft pick is gone uh, they finish nineteenth uh, in the in the NBA overall standings. However, however, the Minnesota Timberwolves have to forfeit their pick because of the Joe Smith uh, contract fiasco that the NBA took their first round picks away for several years. So that nineteenth pick gets bumped up to eighteenth. Remember with the stipulations to the pick that the Grizzlies owed the Pistons,
0: they had to uh, they had to report it.
1: They they had to be between what picks? They
0: had to be between two and eighteen. And eighteen. Which is how so, so, I yeah so, God, I know exactly what's about to happen right now. So
1: you can see what's going to happen.
0: Yes, this is a nightmare is going to happen very soon.
1: For the Pistons, yes. Yes. What's going to happen is that uh, the Orlando Magic are going to claim Phoenix's pick and then that pick is going to satisfy their obligation to the Rockets, and then the, the Vancouver Grizzlies are going to happily take that pick away from the Rockets, forward it to the Pistons, and then all of their nightmares are solved. Notice there's no transaction that that actually occurs. All uh, right, I want to point you to one last transaction here. It is the transaction that we started with. June 2nd, 2001. What date did I just give you?
0: June 2nd, 2001.
1: What day of every uh, of every year do the... What is the deadline for the Grizzlies to forward a pick to the Pistons?
0: Uh, June 1st.
1: June 1st. And Orlando never claimed that pick until June 2nd. So, in exchange for not screwing over the Pistons... Uh, the Pistons give Orlando's 2005 first-round pick back to them. Orlando, meanwhile, as incentive to the Rockets for going along with this, send the 22nd and 23rd picks uh, to the Houston Rockets in the 0-1 draft, and everybody's ha- and, and everybody's happy. Now the the Grizzlies don't even accept that pick at this point. They just forward it off. They they don't even want it because it's no good to them. The, the the Grizzlies had the option of taking the 18th pick away from the Rockets, uh, but since the deadline had passed, it was no good to them. So they wound up claiming it a couple of years later in 2003. So, because of all of this, and remember the original stipulation, uh, what what was the deadline for the the Grizzlies to give the Pistons any pick and not their own?
0: Uh, I'm so lost. Uh, was it June 1st again?
1: No no, I mean what year? Remember I I oh, one of the uh, stipulations to this deal uh it's such a weird thing that they weird rule that they put on this deal but I know it's there.
0: It's like 2002 or something like that.
1: Yes, starting in 2002, yeah. the Grizzlies cannot forward the Pistons anybody else's pick. It has to be their own. So, because Orlando did this, They waited one single day uh, to claim that pick, one extra day. They get their own first-round pick back. And meanwhile, the Grizzlies don't get a pick to send to the Pistons. And from 2002 on, they know that they owe the Pistons their own pick, and they are in serious trouble. That is the entire reason that the Pistons sent a first-round pick to Orlando for nothing. Oh, I have probably broken uh,
0: the brains of all twenty people who are still listening at this point. <laughs> uh, Most people have probably moved on to whatever their next podcast is, or uh, put on some music at this point. But no, that's—I mean—that's incredibly interesting. Um, uh, it's so weird how I don't—I don't know. It, it, there, there had to have been a simpler way for all of this to work out.
1: There really wasn't. Uh, the simpler way would, free, would be for these teams to not involve themselves in 14-player trades and, and trade draft picks in non specific years wow. or put stipulations that you can give me any draft pick. It doesn't have to be your own as long as it's within these two. It's, the NBA got super crazy uh, putting uh, earmarks on draft picks uh, p- between the late 90s and early 2000s. They don't do that today because teams like to have certain in their future it's just like one they're, they're just uh mainly protections now it, it, it's not a, a multiple choice question uh but back then yeah it was the very very much the wild west of uh uh trade stipulations
0: oh boy okay but well it, uh. look,
1: it was well worth it to joe dumars because he gave up what was ultimately. I, I think the 11th or 12th pick in the, in the 2005 draft, which wound up being a guy that never even played in the NBA, Fran Vasquez, uh, in exchange, he got the number two pick in the draft in 2003. He blew it. Uh, he blew the pick, but man, that, this was a brilliant, uh, brilliant move by Joe Dumars.
0: All right. Well, that is going to conclude our, uh, our first ever, um, um, mailbag episode. Uh, This was a lot of fun. Thank you to everybody who sent in your questions. And uh, it was awesome to kind of to go through some stuff that we were probably never going to do an episode on or anything like that. So that's, that's always good. Uh, So next week we will be back again with the 2015 NBA draft. Uh, The Pistons are picking eighth in this draft. This is the Stanley Johnson draft. Uh, And we'll see if we're able to get them something better. There's Devin Booker's out there, Carl Anthony Towns, Chris Steps, Porzingis, uh, who Stephen A. Smith has the greatest reaction to ever, which I probably, I think I might play on the show. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, uh, Scary Terry's out there, Miles Turner, Kelly Oubre. Uh, There's there's a lot of guys out here. Jalil Okafor, whatever happened to Emmanuel Moutier? Why didn't that work out? uh hey Larry it's, Nance Jr.
1: it's an interesting draft class it's not yeah, as good it really as the one we just did but it's way better than the ones that we were doing uh prior to that
0: yeah remember Mario uh has, has just say Edsonia?
1: yeah Mario yeah.
0: He was supposed to I, be like I really, I, liked
1: him. I really liked him uh, as a prospect and man was I wrong
0: yeah it did not work out I remember Pistons fans were very high on the idea of drafting him and they thought I did a podcast for some reason during that time uh as a Lions writer uh and they asked me about that and and I said Stanley Johnson because to me it's see, I, you could go back and look at it I said Stanley Johnson was gonna be the pick because that just made the most sense to me at the time but uh but they were like no super mario has got to be the and, and it's just obviously i don't know that guy just did not turn out to be what anybody thought he was going to be it does have an amazing block on lebron uh that you should look up though he he blocks lebron like at the buzzer and it just looks like a, a just a total uh champion when he does it so look for that highlight but we will see you guys next week for the 2015 nba draft